Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In the early hours of June 4, 1989, the People's Liberation Army soldiers opened fire on unarmed civilians in Beijing in what has become known as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. 25 years later, the memory of this event remains tightly controlled in China. Here to discuss the memory of Tiananmen Square, perceptions of place, and how the Chinese government shapes national identities is Louisa Lim, a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne and an award-winning journalist who formerly worked for National Public Radio in the US and as BBC's Beijing correspondent. She is also the author of the book The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. Thank you for joining me, Louisa. Oh, it's a pleasure. As a way to start this podcast, can you tell me about the events in Tiananmen Square in Beijing around that time in 1989, better to start with? What happened in uh, 1989 was this seven-week-long occupation of Tiananmen Square. It was a movement that was begun by students, but it became a popular movement. It started in mid-April when the... uh, deposed Secretary General of the Communist Party, Hu Yaobang, suddenly died and the students uh, went out to the square to mourn his death and those acts of mourning quickly became protests. Mm. They were calling for reform of the party from within. They wanted freedom, democracy, free press. Uh, They were calling for an end to corruption and nepotism. And it also came in the context of uh, a lot of economic reform and uncertainty, rising inflation. There was a hunger strike that was begun by students in May. And at the same time, as you know, there was a power struggle going on at the highest echelons of the communist leadership between those more sympathetic to the students seen as the reform camp, like Zhao Ziyang and the more hardline uh, faction, people like Li Peng. And as we know, the hardliners won out. And on the night of June the 3rd to June the 4th, the square was cleared by martial law troops and many people died. Uh, We still don't know how many. Uh, Most of those deaths happened on the approach roads to the square. Mm. But I should... uh, I would like to emphasize that the protests were not something that just happened in Beijing. There were protests all over the country in dozens and dozens of cities. And they were very, very popular protests with, you know, work units, uh, government schools, you know, all kinds of people joining in. And it was a call for reform from within. When you say that it isn't something that just happened in Beijing, can you give me some some more examples? Because the, the only deaths weren't in Beijing as a result of, of this kind of a crackdown, was it? That's right. I mean, there were protests all over China, and there were several places where there were crackdowns. But the other site, uh, which I write about in my book, where there were known to be uh, deaths was in Chengdu in southwestern China, where there was also uh, a large protest movement and a hunger strike based in the square in the middle of Chengdu, uh, Tianfu Square. Mm. It was a little bit different what happened in Chengdu. Actually, on the morning of June the 4th, they cleared that square uh, quite peacefully. But then afterwards, when people in Chengdu found out what had happened in Beijing, they came back out on the streets to protest against uh, the brutality. And then there was a crackdown on that. The People's Armed Police were brought in and there was a lot of beating and there was some very, very brutal beating that targeted protesters around the head. And again, we don't know how many people died. We do know that 
the official Chinese government sources, the propaganda that they put out at the time said that eight people died in Chengdu, including mm. two students. But those people that I interviewed, and I tracked down quite a lot of eyewitnesses, they all believed that the number of people who died there was higher. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to get to the propaganda style and, and how Chinese remembers those events in a minute. I just want to ask you, how does the Western world know about this event so well, or as well as we do compared to China? Why do we have a better knowledge of what happened, especially at Tiananmen Square? We really had a ringside seat to all the events of 1989 because there were so many Western press mm. in Beijing at the time. They'd gone for Gorbachev's visit, and of course, they had front row seats to everything that was playing out in the square. You know, people were doing lives from Tiananmen Square and people were following it, you know, really as it happened. So, I think just because it happened at the moment when television technology made that possible, people were sort of tracking it on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, that's not the same for events outside Beijing and places like Chengdu, mm. where, you know, we didn't have pictures, we didn't have TV crews. So, you know, in terms of our understanding of it, Western people didn't really get to see what was happening. So it never became such a big story. Yeah, I think that's one reason why people do in the West still really remember 89 and they have a memory of what happened. I think, you know, in China, it's completely different because the way that it's been remembered has been really controlled, controlled very tightly. So what we saw was in the immediate aftermath of the crackdown, there was a large amount of government sanctioned propaganda that was put out, putting forward the government side of the story that these had been counter-revolutionary riots, uh, you know, it was necessary to put them down in order to ensure stability. They weren't denying that the event took place. They were just putting their own spin on it. That's they? right. Yeah. In the beginning, there was a lot of uh, publicity that was put out about it. So there was sort of wall-to-wall -wall documentaries on CCTV. Right. And there were lots of books that were put out of it. I mean, in Chengdu, the local government put out a book called The True Story of the Chengdu Riots from Start to Finish. And they printed 760,000 copies yeah. in July just, you know, one month after what had happened. So they were really capturing the narrative and trying to shape it. But now if you go back to China and you try to look for those books, that propaganda, you won't find it. Because in the years since, all of the talk about Tiananmen has been muzzled, really. Those kind of books that were put out in the beginning to shape the narrative have been removed from bookstore shelves, from libraries. Mm. And, you know, if you want to do research on Tiananmen today, if you're looking for that kind of material, you won't find it in China. It's all sort of held in university libraries overseas. So what information is the Chinese government keen to promote then when it, it not even talks about this? It focuses on different stories that are more beneficial to the government, don't they? Oh, no, the Chinese government does not want to talk about the events yeah. of 1989. It gets talked about very, very rarely. I mean, really, the only time that it's ever brought up is, you know, once a year, foreign journalists will ask the foreign ministry spokesman, and their line is pretty much always the same. They say that happened in the past. You know, our assessment on it is fixed. The government did what was necessary and we made the right decision. So it's really kind of a retrospective justification of mm. the government's action, uh, really to uh, make the point that China's 30 years of sort of high-speed economic growth was 
based on the actions that they took back then in 1989. Mm. And had the government not done what it did in 1989, perhaps China would not be the world's second largest economy today. And I think that's a pretty mainstream explanation. And it's an explanation that a lot of Chinese people find very persuasive, including people who took part in the protests in 89. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people who, who do agree with this way of thinking. So what happens to somebody uh, even today when you try and approach this topic in China, the process of assembling this book and talking to people? There must be a lot of a lot of apprehension and fear about bringing these sort of events up. Right, it's not an easy topic to talk about in China today because the lines are so unclear. You never know if you're going to get someone into trouble, and of course, with a topic like this, it's so sensitive, and that's a really hard decision to make. But at the same time, my thinking was that if someone didn't write about it now, those chances would disappear. You mm. know, the generation who campaigned on it, people like the Tiananmen mothers, they're getting old and they're beginning to die. And, and you know, also people like Bao Tong, who was Zhao Ziyang's private secretary and who he spent seven years in, in prison after Tiananmen, people like that will not be around forever. And there has been no way really for them to tell their side of the story in a way that that is kind of amplifying mm. what they have to say. So it, it was a difficult book to write. I do think that is what made it necessary. Yeah, yeah. From the, the point of view of a journalist, though, you've been working in Beijing for years. Were you concerned about putting yourself at risk by writing this? I've been based in Beijing for 10 years, but I wasn't concerned about myself. I was very concerned about my interviewees. Mm. But in many cases, the people that I was interviewing were people like the Tiananmen mothers and Baotong, so people who had been campaigning on it or thinking about it, people for whom this was an extremely important sort of milestone in their life who've been trying to talk about it for years and who very deeply understood the kind of risks that they might be taking in talking to me. And I mean, you know, there were risks. The first time that I visited one of the Tiananmen mothers, Zhang Xianling, when she opened the door, she the first thing that she said to me was, um, the police knew you were coming. To visit her. Yes. Wow. It was clear that this wasn't going to be an easy book to write, and I took a lot of precautions. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. Mm. I never spoke about the book on the telephone or in my office or at my house or over email, you know, over WeChat. You know, I did keep it very, very secret, uh, except for, you know, obviously with the people who I was interviewing. How about now that the book has come out? Do you know what the reaction has been in China, not just amongst the people who might have read it and who are sympathetic to it, but in the upper echelons of the government at all? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I do know is that after the book came out, The Economist did a really nice review of it. And when that issue of The Economist arrived in China, all the pages referring to my book were carefully torn out. Wow. So, you know, someone yeah. noticed somewhere, that, <laughs> but that's the only kind of reaction that I had. Okay, so can we talk now about the extent of, as you call it in the book, the amnesia of this event? It continues to this day, doesn't it? The event seems to be known about but not talked about. I think actually the institutional memory, the memory of the events of 1989 have really 
been sort of smoothed over and excised to such an extent that actually very few people today, even amongst those living in Beijing, really understand deeply what happened. Yeah. So I did this small experiment where I took a picture of Tank Man. That's the iconic AP photograph of the young man in the white shirt and the black trousers standing in front of a line of tanks as they roll down uh, Chang'anjie mm. with his shopping bags in his hands. So I took that picture to four Beijing campuses to see if students could identify it. I assumed they probably would be able to because, you know, you've got 650 million Chinese people online. And these students at these universities are really smart. They understand how to get around censorship, but I was really surprised. So out of 100, only 15 students wow. could tell me what it was. Yeah, It was so interesting because you could really tell there was actually kind of a physical visceral reaction. If they knew what it was, you could see because they'd kind of gasp and rear away from the picture. Yeah, And they would tense up and they wouldn't want to talk. Whilst all of those students who didn't know what it was, you know, they'd be really laid back, they'd be smiling, they'd be laughing and joking. They'd say, is it South Korea? Is it Kosovo? Like 19 students asked me if it was a military parade. Yeah, right. That was pretty surprising to me. It kind of shows how successful the Chinese government has been in controlling this story. I mean, in not just reducing it, but changing its message. And now it's going to just, by the sounds of it, pass out of living memory. How, how tightly controlled is the censorship now? Like if somebody in... China talks about Tiananmen Square and tries to, to raise the subject. Is there still a reaction? Well, I mean, it depends who and how. You know, it's really interesting. This, You know, if you're sitting in a restaurant chatting to a friend and you talk about it, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. But there's a lot more attention paid upon people who were involved in those protests, you know? Those people are still watched very, very carefully. Mm. And if there's any kind of aspect of mobilization that might be going on, then it's immediately leapt on. So we've seen a number of cases in recent years. I mean, one is a poet, Zhu Yufu, and he sent a poem over Skype to some friends, and it was a poem called The Square, for this act, he got seven years in prison just sending a poem to some friends over, over Skype. And I mean, even this year, we've had a couple of cases where people were punished with prison sentences for public acts of commemoration and remembrance, because those are really challenges to the party's historical narrative. Mm. So, I mean, there's a Sichuanese activist called Chen Yunfei, and he visited the gravesite of a Tiananmen victim. And he got four years in prison for that. The charge was picking quarrels and stirring up trouble. Yeah. And then we um, had a case where four people have been indicted on charges of inciting subversion of state power. And what they did was they were marketing baijiu, so the Chinese alcohol, but with labels that had sort of stylized pictures that referred to Tank Man and with June the 4th, 89 on the label. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So they're, you know, that's a very serious charge inciting subversion. They will be facing long jail terms. Mm. You know, I think these public acts of commemoration are immediately stamped on. And I think what's also interesting is in the last three years, we've really seen a move to stop private acts of commemoration as well. So in the past, people like the Tiananmen mothers have been able even to have 
symposia, very small scale sort of meetings. I think they did it on the 10th anniversary in a hotel, you know, with 20 or so attendees talking Mm. about these issues. But in 2014, they held one in somebody's house and about a third of the people who were there got detained, again, on charges of creating disturbance, even though it was within somebody's apartment. Yeah. So we're really seeing a move to stop both public and actually private commemorations of June the 4th. It doesn't just extend to June the 4th. Anything that is seen as subversive is very much controlled and and stamped down still, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly true that anything that could be seen as an act of mobilization is watched very, very closely and every effort is taken to nip it in the bud. And I think that's one of the lessons that the Chinese government learned from the protests of 89, that, you know, large scale protests cannot and will not be tolerated at any cost. So I had a really interesting experience in Chengdu, actually, in 2013. There was supposed to be a protest. Some people were firmly against the idea of this big petrochemical plant that was going to be built in Pengzhou, which is not far from Chengdu. Mm. They were worried about pollution. They were also worried about the fact that it was being built in this very seismically active region there was talk that there was going to be this big protest. And I was there at the time and it was just astonishing the kind of amount of trouble that the government went to to stop the protest from happening. I mean, they found someone who they said was responsible for the initial WeChat messages calling for a protest and they put her out on telly confessing and saying that she was wrong and then they leafleted the whole city and then they had work meetings in all the government work units telling people that if they protested they would lose their jobs even that wasn't enough what they actually did which i thought was astonishing was they changed the weekend the protest was supposed to be on uh, may the 4th a saturday but they suddenly announced that the whole city would have to work on the Saturday and the Sunday, and the weekend would be changed to Monday and Tuesday instead. So, you know, students had to go to university. People had to go to work. People had to go to work. Everybody's lives were turned upside down. And then they had this massive kind of security operation at the same time. They called it a virtual combat exercise where they mobilized, you know, police and anti-riot police and firemen and plainclothes policemen. In the square that I was talking about, Tianfu Square, they really had security forces stationed every 20 feet. They had these like trucks of, of security forces patrolling the city. It was just this extraordinary show of force. The message was very clear. All this to control the message though and to and to make sure that there's no resistance, not even resistance to something, just a a difference of opinion and ideas. Well, it's the act of mobilization. Yeah. The the idea that people were getting together to organize that I think freaked them out. But it was, you know, it was an extraordinary thing to see. And it just so happened that I was there reporting another story. And, you know, the thing that I found very interesting was that when I went back to Beijing, nobody knew about it. And I was checking WeChat and looking everywhere. And it was actually quite hard to find information about it. And I realized that even in this information era, sometimes things can be controlled that carefully. The news doesn't necessarily seep out. You know, we assume that the internet makes the world more open. It's not necessarily the case. So do you think that sort of methodology is is sustainable long term? That's really hard to say. I mean, you know... Bill Clinton always said 
controlling the internet was like nailing jello to the wall but mm. i do think that the chinese government's control of the information channels has been quite masterful it's hard to say i mean you know there is dissatisfaction in china but at the same time I, you know people also can see that their lives are much much better than their mm. parents or their grandparents and a lot of people are grateful for that and of course from the government's perspective the lesson of 89 has been well learned and we can see that playing out in this massive stability maintenance machine which is designed to stop that from ever happening again you've been to tiananmen square and definitely since this event what do you think that does to the space itself do you go there and and see this massacre or do you go there and see chairman mao or the the mightiness of the chinese government uh, what do you see for that space well, it really depends at what time of year you visit and I, I guess also who you are you know for western visitors who have that abiding image that memory of what happened in 1989 of course no traces except perhaps at certain times of year you'll see a lot of security if you go there around june the 4th but i think for chinese visitors it has a completely different resonance you know the square has become really a site of national pride after 89 there was you know really conscious effort made they designed this very solemn flag raising ceremony which is a celebration of china's national identity and if you go and attend that you go at dawn and it's astonishing you know there's thousands of people flocking to the square it's as the light comes up and you know you see people from all over china and school parties mm. and literally thousands of people who come just to watch the ceremony of the goose stepping guards and the flag going up and for them it's is really quite an emotional experience they see it as a site where they can celebrate china its strength its identity its unity and so that it has a completely different meaning, I think, for Chinese people. Well, fascinating. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and SoundCloud, where reviews are appreciated. Louisa Lim's book is The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited. It's published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. You can follow her on Twitter. She's at Lim Louisa. And you can follow Latrobe Asia, we're at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.